All right, everybody, we have a great episode of Angel with a surprise guest today. Jason. Oh, that's me. Very cool. Yes. <laughs> Molly interviewed me about raising my first fund 10 years ago or so, the Launch Fund One, which had a lot of great companies in it. But first, we're going to talk about some of the biggest cybersecurity hacks of the last decade because Putin uh, has invaded the Ukraine, sadly, and he is threatening and saber rattling that he will be uh, cyber hacking and cyber attacking uh, some of the other countries, possibly in NATO, which includes us. Mm hmm. Shields up, everybody. Shields. It's going to be a great show. Stick with us. Season six of Angel is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. A business is only as strong as its people, and every hire matters. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash angel. Our crowd helps you invest in early pre-IPO companies alongside professional VCs. If you're interested in investing, you can join our crowd for free at O-U-R-C-R-O-W-D.com slash angel. That's ourcrowd.com slash angel. And Brokers Startup Insurance Program helps startups secure the most important types of insurance at a lower cost with less hassle. Save up to 20% off of traditional insurance today at embroker.com slash twist. While you're there, get an extra 10% off using offer code TWIST. All right, Molly, there's been a lot of talk uh, about cyber warfare because uh, as of the taping of this episode, Russia has started military and a military invasion, there's no easy way to say it, of the Ukraine. And uh, we thought we would pause for a minute here on This Week in Startups and talk about cybersecurity. Mm hmm. Yeah, the, the background here is that cybersecurity experts are warning American businesses that they need to go what they call shields up right now, be prepared right. for the very high likelihood. Because, you know, uh, upon the invasion of Ukraine, Vladimir Putin made it very clear, issued this really terrifying statement, right, where he essentially said, anybody who interferes from the outside should be prepared to suffer consequences, the kind you've never seen throughout your history, all decisions these all relevant decisions have been made here. Now, a lot of people are interpreting that to mean that he is threatening nuclear war. Seems Unlikely. It actually seems more likely that what he means is we will unleash cyber warfare and attack critical likely. infrastructure right. at a level that you've never seen before. There have been a lot of major hacks throughout the years, and we're going to go through some of them that have originated in Russia. And there have been a lot of what appeared to be to cybersecurity professionals, intrusion mm -hmm. attempts, like testing, basically, right. of things like power plants, things like water systems, so like critical infrastructure that could be really, really damaging. And the reason this is so important is because of NATO. So yes. NATO's Article yes. 5 is the principle of collective defense in okay. the NATO founding treaty, which says if one of our member countries is attacked, we all have to respond. And now includes cyber warfare. Oh, really? I uh -huh. did not know that. I learned something on the show today. I know. So if something like the Colonial Pipeline and the SolarWinds are the two I remember the names yep. of, but I need a refresher on what exactly happened in those yep. so I can be a little more educated as to what could happen. Like before we even get to what could happen from the hacks, worst case scenario is, and it's highly likely. America or some other country tries to intervene here with sanctions or some other intervention. Russia launches a cyber warfare attack against one of those countries. Let's be honest, most likely us. That triggers Article 
five. Ethan the Nodi is correct. And boom, we have World War Three. <laughs> theoretically, and World also, War Three. Yeah. Theoretically, yeah. World War Three. Yeah. And the and. cyber attacks themselves can be unbelievably damaging. Right. Like beyond anything I think it we we can really imagine. So we have a little, yeah, we have a little. So maybe not as idle a threat as it seems. And certainly I don't think he's threatening nuclear, which I saw the mainstream media on all sides was like, oh my God, he's going to drop nukes. It seems unlikely that Putin would gain from dropping nukes. He's obviously going to gain from what he's doing now in terms of the minor excursion to date. And let's hope it stays minor but um and it, you really pray for the people minor? of the ukraine doesn't seem very much well i mean it's not a full-scale carpet bombing and one hundred ninety thousand troops have crossed but the border tanks as of are Thursday. literally rolling in tanks i'm just talking about the death toll you know like i'm just oh. hoping that the death toll stays very low and gotcha. you know gotcha. i mean if we looked at this like some of the excursions we had in the middle east shock and awe type situation where you know a hundred thousand people died yeah. That's what I'm hoping this, you know, doesn't get to. But, you yeah. know, that's just a hope. And we're obviously praying for the people of the Ukraine and for this to be resolved. Uh, but let's talk about the colonial pipeline. I remember that yes. uh, this had something to do with stopping basically the flow of gas, right? I mean, yeah, this, so this was a ransomware attack. But looking back at these three largest hacks, Colonial Pipeline is, of course, the most recent. That that was the one in April 2021, where hackers came in apparently through <laughs> Bloomberg's VPN, its virtual ah. private network account. They wow. took control of the pipeline Crazy. and did this, you know, ransomware, which if you're not familiar, is where somebody takes control of a network or a system and says, we're not going to let it go until you pay us. In this case, they wanted $4.4 million dollars. Apparently, the hackers were an affiliate of a Russia-linked cybercrime group known as DarkSide. And yeah, it turned the gas off. Hmm. And that was this. I remember this was a southeastern United States. This was in May of 2021. And it halted operations. They wanted like 75 Bitcoins. Mm-hmm. Um, and on receipt, um, they restored the system. On June 7th, the Department of Justice announced it had recovered 63.7 of the Bitcoins, approximately 2.3 million from the ransom payment. So I guess paying in Bitcoin is uh, not as anonymous or foolproof for terrorist organizations. Uh, And this was the criminal hacking group DarkSide were responsible. That was a bad one. Yeah. Then there was not Petya. Which was Petya. I don't know this one. The very that was the terrible one. That was the Uh. one that like affected Maersk. The shipping giant, they got into Merck, the pharmaceutical giant, FedEx, the food construction companies, Mondelez. This was massive, a massive ransomware attack. I think uh, each one of these companies, the ransomware inflicted more than nine figures of damages. Hmm. And it did that. It affected them all at once. This was from this Russian hacker group known as Sandworm. And it was in 2016. And they got through this Ukrainian software company called mm-hmm. Linkos Group, which is kind of like a Quicken or a TurboTax, and then got access to d- all of these dozens of mm-hmm. major companies. It was huge. The White House said the impacts of that were $10 billion in total, wow. at least. Maersk in particular, I mean, that was bonkers. Like it, They essentially had to shut down shipping mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. all the information they needed to run the business was frozen until they paid up. Crazy. There was that one, yeah. and there was the one by North Korea where they hacked Sony. That was just embarrassing. 
Right. Um, so that wasn't as big of a cyber hack that we would expect here. Although the embarrassing ones are, I guess. They're bad too. In, yeah. I mean, they're bad too. They, they create a lot of headlines, but they sometimes don't shut off just, oil or shut down critical systems too. Like sometimes they're just a proof of concept. Like does our tool work? Ah. And we'll see. And right, then tell of course, me about solar winds. Cause that's the one winds. I remember the name of, but I don't remember what happened. Yeah, SolarWinds was like that huge deal right before the pandemic, and then everybody immediately forgot about it because it yeah. was super huge. I believe also uh, meant to, yes, Russian in origin. Mm -hmm. This was a big hack on government systems. It, it included businesses also, but so SolarWinds is a company that develops software for businesses to manage their networks, systems, and IT infrastructure. They got into that. Uh, SolarWinds had over 33,000 public and private sector customers, including almost all Fortune 500 companies and government agencies. And as more information came out about this, you started to realize that they had hit Department of Justice, State, mm. Treasury, Crazy. Commerce, Energy, I think even everything. Homeland Security, like they got into everything and just had, and this is what is so scary about this exact moment where this threat is coming from Putin. Because we have yet to even see the impact of what Russian agents were able to gather during the, so the solar winds hack. They were just hanging out in these systems, getting unfettered access to nuclear secrets, top level communications, top secret information for months before this was detected. Right. And so I guess we need to know, or you would think after solar winds and, and these other exploits, we would have had our government go to critical infrastructure, mm -hmm. pipelines, electricity, water supplies, and think about those. Yep. And I, I guess the question is, at what point do we start looking at these attacks in a more serious way yep. uh, and responding to them in a more serious way? I, I don't know the answer to that, but you know, do you respond Maybe. with a physical attack to a cyber attack, or can you only respond with a... A cyber attack? I don't know what is proportional response in this case, but let's well, hope that this doesn't sanctions, come to pass. I think that we imposed sanctions as a result of solar mm. winds, or there was certainly pressure to do that. I'm about to stray into previous administration politics, which yeah. I'd always rather not. With, yeah. always it's always fraught. With. There was yeah. not a, you know, there was not considered to be a proportional response to the solar winds hack at the time. Um, but there is a lot of question about the U.S. cybersecurity posture, because we do have this kind of deterrence posture, mm. but not, it's more like prevention as opposed to response. And so there's a sense that we need to get a lot more aggressive. And, it's and also, we're just not staffed up. Like, we don't have enough cybersecurity professionals in the U.S. government at all. It always seems that this happens through third-party software because SolarWinds was mm -hmm. not just like a code name. That's an actual software company yep, that exactly. was hacked. And so when these things happen, you know, it's usually Microsoft software or SolarWinds software or VMware. Somebody is not plugging uh, their holes. And this is where I think paying bounties, probably the best thing we can do yep. is to generously pay bounties to people who find hacks and use open source software where you know, it, it's open kimono and you're going to see everything inside so you can defend against these issues, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that's where open source is is got such a huge advantage. Yes, everybody can see everything, but what that means is the holes are plugged in real time and fast. Yep. 
It's also why, yeah, if you're a startup, be prepared to clear these hurdles, right? Be prepared to be put through a very rigorous process, especially if you're going after government contracts. But yeah, you don't want to be the, what was it in that big target hack that resulted in all that identity theft? They got in through the HVAC system. Uh, What? Like, (laughs) we don't, we also don't need to put everything on the internet, you know? Yeah. yeah, like we're not, I mean, when it, when it comes to this particular war, like there's a, essentially a ground war happening in Ukraine, but, but we're not, I don't think a hundred, we're not at all prepared from a cybersecurity perspective for the fact that this is a completely different kind of warfare. Yeah. Well, imagine and it's going to probably expand in that way. It's a new year, but for some businesses, it's harder than ever to find and hire qualified people. I know this. Oh my God. And it's so true for small businesses. And that's where LinkedIn Jobs comes in. They make it easier to find the people you want to talk to faster and for free. And this is why we love LinkedIn at launch. We're constantly looking for great talent, whether it's somebody who's been at it for 10 years or somebody that's coming out of school and maybe they've been working for 10 months. And we find so many great people on LinkedIn and you can too by creating a free job posting in minutes. And when you make that free job posting, you're going to reach the world's largest professional network of over 770 million people. You know this because you keep your page up to date and you're using messaging and the feed and videos and groups and all the amazing features of LinkedIn. Well, if you're using those amazing features, you're going to get exposed. If you're using those amazing features, you're going to get exposed to the amazing job opportunities on LinkedIn. And when you do these job listings, you'll see that you can add screening questions to filter out all the non-serious candidates, which is for me, that's the thing that makes me go absolutely crazy when I get too many people applying for the job who are not qualified. A great screening question just solves that problem. If you're hiring somebody to work in podcasting as but one example, you could say, tell us what are your three favorite podcasts and why? Or what do you think makes a great podcast in one sentence or less? You know, you ask a question like that, and you really get a feel of how dynamic somebody is and if they're serious and you want those serious candidates and those serious candidates are on LinkedIn just like you are. The tools are so simple to use. They let you quickly filter and prioritize who you want to interview so that you can really have that, you know, efficiency. It's sometimes it's not that you can't find people. It's that you can't find the great people and the great people are on LinkedIn. You know that because you're great and you're on LinkedIn. And that's why small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. So here's the old call to action. LinkedIn jobs helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster. Do you know that every week, nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Well, now you do. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to post your first job there for free. LinkedIn.com slash angel. LinkedIn.com slash A-N-G-E-L. Once again, LinkedIn.com slash angel to post your job for free. Terms and conditions, of course, apply because they're giving you something for free. L- let me take you through a scenario, Molly. Yeah. Uh, China invades Taiwan. And uh, then they take TikTok and they know the location and they have access to your camera roll and they take i don't know god forbid the children or the spouses of specific people in our government they hack them they hack their private photos they hack their private conversations their email all through the tiktok app sounds Mm -hmm. crazy sounds like a conspiracy theorist i know everybody loves tiktok and it's highly entertaining that is a massive threat to our country because as we just explained It's usually some third-party piece of software that then compromises the rest of the network. Guess what? There's tens of millions of Americans who have opted in to sharing their camera roll and their phone and the camera on their phone and the microphone 
you will all click location okay, camera okay, you know, audio okay with a Chinese piece of spyware known as TikTok that we allow in this country. I know I sound like a kook. We have to ban TikTok. Let some American companies copy the, the, the format like Zuck did with Snapchat. Ban that. It'll go to these new apps. American companies will own it. And the Chinese will not have access to 50 million Americans' phones. In other words, all Americans. You know the location of every important politician if they're with a child who has TikTok on their phone by yeah. proxy. You know where they go to dinner. You know where they hang out. You know their home locations. I, I'm sounding like a crazy conspiracy theorist, but this is maddening that we're allowing this level of access to a Chinese company given China's propensity to spy. I mean, I'll definitely give you that one. I will say the one that's a lot scarier is like last year, almost exactly this time when somebody hacked the water treatment plant in Florida and like oy, oy, oy. poisoned it, like set the, you know, or, or attempted to set the levels of sodium hydroxide. What? Um, to a hundred times the I'm normal not aware level. A hundred times. Yeah, yeah. And but they, they have testing. Here's the thing. They time. have testing on those plants, right? They're testing the water constantly. So if somebody did do that, we, I'm thinking we'd catch it. I, I mean, that right? Like, I don't, do you, how, how confident do you feel about that with every water treatment plant in America that now they put online and they've automated a whole bunch of it and they've just tried to like walk away? Here's what we should do. The United States government should put $100 million into a fund and they should uh, give out prizes to the best hackers in the country who make the government aware. In other words, a bounty program, but make it not just a bounty program, make it like these people are uh, the greatest, you know, mm -hmm. um, celebrities, you know, athletes in the world. And just pay them a million dollars each or a year. Warriors. To break what into they stuff. really are is warrior, right? Like yes. you need to set them up as our Captain America. Yes, basically. they're Navy SEALs. They're the Navy SEALs of the next generation yes. of warfare without a doubt. Yes. Like and they really are. The next wars are going to be fought. They're either going to be the last war ever because they're nuclear. Yeah. But most likely it's going to involve like cybersecurity and cyber attacks at a massive scale. And we're still fighting the old war. And this was like the thing that really upset me about Aaron Schwartz. For those of you who don't know, he was just a really nice kid who I'd met at some conferences. Um, he might have been part of Y Combinator. I think he was at a Y Combinator company. He was at MIT, I believe at MIT. And, um, you know, he was a hacker in the, in the good sense of the word, you know, like mm -hmm. to uh, do stuff. And he was given the title of co-founder of Reddit. Um, after the formation of Not a Bug, which was a merger of Schwartz's uh, project uh, with a company that Al Alexis Ohanan and Steve Huffman created that you know as Reddit. Anyway, he, um, he wanted to make research free. So he broke into, and I'm using air quotes here, um, a closet at MIT and put like a hard drive and a laptop or something and he just recorded all the all the papers and documents and he just wanted to have access to all this literature <laughs> he wasn't like stealing credit cards he was like literally stealing mm -hmm. papers mm -hmm. and uh they came down on him so hard the police um jstor was yeah and uh he wanted the acad academic journals from jstor uh which if you were in uh, any kind of uh yeah, if you're in any kind, it's just really depressing. But uh, he killed himself, long story short, um, because he was under so much pressure by the feds. And this is somebody who uh, could have been an asset. You could have, instead of giving him a million dollars in fines and harassing him and, 
you know, for stealing academic papers. Mm -hmm. You should have offered him a goddamn job, you morons. This is the kind of person you court who has unlimited upside in, you know, finding exploits, etc. It'd be like taking somebody who, you know, makes a, a new sniper rifle, you know, from a 3D printed gun, do you put them in jail? Or do you tell them like, how would you like to be in the sniper program? Mm -hmm. We could use your skills. Like, when, when Professor X found Wolverine, he didn't, you know, shun him, he said, let me train you, you know? Yeah. And so with these mutants, and I mean it in the best sense of the word, man, we need to just get them on the payroll. Because that's what Putin does. Putin finds these folks. And he's like, you're hired. Mm -hmm. Let's take that approach. Mm -hmm. Pay yeah. him well. Make him yeah. white hats. We got to. I mean, gotta, imagine if yeah. that had happened. Imagine how much more ready we could be. And yeah. not for, and he would still be alive. I mean, it's he just, would still that's be alive. an appalling story. It's like one of those just horrible stories that I just, I wanted to only bring it up because he's not necessarily like the world's greatest hacker. I'm not saying that. But just as an example of how the government treats people who do even the modest amount of hacking, you could, you could channel that energy. Clearly, he yeah. had energy to figure out solutions to problems. Uh, just channel it and let's protect our country. And man, like, we, you know how many secrets Putin has? All this money shifting around. We could ha if we could hack his accounts and find Putin's Bitcoin and Ethereum, NFTs, you know, Putin's got all that stuff locked up somewhere. Let's, let's, let's turn him upside down before yeah. he does that. It's time for another R Crowd Deal of the Week. Right now, you can join R Crowd's investment in Future Family, according to the deal memo Future Family provides millions of families with access to affordable treatment through buy now pay later financing or bnpl if you're in the industry they also power 15 percent of fertility clinics in the u.s according to their deal memo and last year they grew patient served by 300 percent you can invest in future family at rcrowd.com slash angel today all over the world, companies like Future Family are innovating and driving returns for investors. And our crowd analyzes many of these companies, then they select the ones with the greatest growth potential and bring them to you. From personalized medicine to health tech, which includes Future Family tackling the $60 billion IVF and fertility market. So our crowd identifies these innovators so you can invest when growth potential is greatest, which is early. And that's when I invest too, early. So if you are an accredited investor, you can join our crowd for free at OURCROWD.com slash angel. And you can review the current deals. That's OURCROWD.com slash angel to sign up for free and read all those deal memos for free and get smart. All right. You know that on the Angel series here, we've been interviewing first time fund managers for Angel season six. We've had an incredible season so far. Great guests like Mac the VC, Paige Doherty, David Rosenthal, Monique Woodard, to name a few. But producer Nick had a great idea, which is now that there's another person here to do some talking and question asking, we should interview the original Angel, Jason about raising the first launch fund, which was called sure. Launch Fund One. Jason, yep. evidently, we're doing we're gonna do a little bit of origin story here. I love started it. <laughs> started thinking about raising launch fund one all the way back in March 2013. But we have to give credit here mm. to Jason Bestie, David Sachs at the 2013 Launch Festival, who apparently in this 63 second clip had the idea. Um, in closing, you've had a pretty good run here at the launch conference, right. and we were talking backstage, and you had yeah. uh, this incredible idea. Let's hear it. 
Well, I mean, the reality is there's so much interesting stuff going on out there. I mean, in the demo pit, on stage here. I mean, there's more than, you know, any human can keep track of except for you, I think. You're, <laughs> you're like the only one who can, can keep track of all this activity. Right. So what I said to you is, you know, why don't you pick, say, the top five of these uh, launch conference startups every year, and uh, I'll invest, you know, I'll make an angel investment, say like $50,000 each, so we'll do a $250,000 little mini fund, and uh, you just pick the, the winners, and, and, I'm, and I'm behind them. Wow, big round of applause. You've just seen the formation on stage of the launch fund, I guess we'll call it. And yeah. So now every... And, 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 and just, you know, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll give the, the, the launch conference a 20% carry like a VC would take. So yes. that if, if you pick the winner, you pick well, so if the we money had will done go that, into the conference. Yeah. If we had done that with Yammer, <laughs> probably like a $30 million company, that would have been a 30 bagger. Yeah, Is that what you were about money. to say? You can remember the, the whole conversation now? You're like, oh yeah, that time. Yeah, yeah it's coming back to me. I remember nothing wow. until I see it and then it all starts to fill in. Um, but yeah, that was kind of the origin story there. Um, I mean, actually. first of all, also, if you are not, if you did not see this on video, you got to go find it because yeah. the suit, the three-piece so suit that Jason that is, is rocking uh, is spectacular. Yeah. Producer's note, this is also the last time David Sachs gave Jason credit for anything. A remarkable <laughs> moment, really. <laughs> that's hilarious, yes. But, he's very I gracious. mean, this is, this is so interesting because I have asked people how Launch Fund came about. And this yeah. is roughly the answer every time was just that people were like, Jason's really good at this. And so his rich yeah. friends wanted to give him their money to invest on their behalf. Yeah, basically. I mean, what happened was I, as a startup advocate and former journalist, had a network. Some friends of mine were, start, were starting companies. Uh, one was like investing in an electric car company. Another one was creating a poker company. And they were like, another one was creating Twitter. And they said like, hey, do you know anybody um, who, you know, might want to invest in this? And I was like, oh, yeah, Fred Wilson. Oh, this person at Sequoia. Oh, this person here. And I would just forward founders around for free. You know, I wasn't like taking care of anything. And I thought angel investing was stupid because I was like, I'm going to bet on myself. I'm going to throw all my money into what I'm doing and, and be focused, which, which is a theory, you know, like a, it's a good thesis actually as an entrepreneur, if you're in your prime entrepreneurial years, I do think focus matters. Um, and that's when Ruloff came to me uh, and then Sachs and they were like, hey, you know, Ruloff kind of said, hey, here's some money to invest from the Scouts program and then- Remind Naval everybody who Ruloff Angel is, is in case they just got oh, yeah, here Ruloff because you do pick uh, up a new fan every yeah. day. Yeah, Ruloff Botha is, when I met him, had was the CFO of PayPal who had become like a new, you know, junior partner at Sequoia, mm -hmm. along with Alfred Lin, who had been working at uh, Zappos. And so they were kind of the young guns there. And they cr created the Scouts program, which was like, here's 25, 50K. Um, and those days, 50K into a $5 million company was 1%. Because mm -hmm. that's what the valuations were. So my thesis was, hey, let's do 100 investments or so. Uh, and uh, raise 10 million and I'll take a 20% carry and no fees, uh, just the legal fees. So I didn't take any fees and I just did it like as a side hustle while I was running other companies. And, you know, of course that fund hit Com and Robinhood and, you know, a bunch of other unicorns and it, it did very well. It, it will historically do very well. And I just passed the hat at poker and a bunch of friends said, yeah, put me down for 50, put me down for 100. And then one friend who was doing that introduced me he said, you know, our mutual billionaire friend, um, who's retired now, he actually allocates, do you want an introduction? And he just emailed them. And this was like the big moment for me, I was collecting 50k checks. And that person said, Yeah, we'll put 5 million in. Uh, and wow. they took half the fund. 
and uh, that LP is still with us. I won't say which one it is, but yeah. you know, that was like a more formal kind of thing. And, um, you know, it just spirals like that. You don't know where your luck's going to happen. So you can be collecting these 50 K checks and then somebody's like, yeah, that, that fund manager seems smart. Let's, let's bet on, you know, them. And, and that's what happened to me. And, and I closed up the 10 really quick. I deployed it over, I think three years. And then we did launch fund two and we're wrapping up launch fund three. And we generally don't talk about, you know, future funds, but you know, the one, two, three, I, there's a number that there's comes, a number after, that comes three, after that before five. <laughs> <laughs> so theoretically, if there, if I did raise another fund, it would be launch fund four. Let's unpack some, some chunks of that. So you closed 3 yeah. million immediately from close friends. It sounds like had million, known yeah. most of the LPs for yeah. over 10 years, got this large investor. And then on September 24th, 2013 is essentially the announce. You send this email to the big list, which is what your the list of like, yeah, all of your connections and everybody you've ever known. Yeah, I mean, basically had a big list, which was, uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, just said, hey, over the next five years, we'll invest 100 to 250k and 50 to 100 startups. I think we did over 100. But it was just like, um, you know, my first fund, like a little experiment, which we heard from a lot of people today, like, you know, yeah. learning the game. And, uh, you know, there were some mistakes there. And there were some brilliant things. And there were things I would change and have changed since then. So you said, I'm super excited that I've closed my first formal angel investing fund, the launch fund one. Additionally, I've started one of the first angel list syndicates more on that below. So it was really this kind of dual structure from the start. It sounds like a yeah, fund we on the, the one side. And by the way, I met uh, someone here at this conference that I'm at in Arizona who was like, I mean, I've met several big Jason fans, but one in particular was like, I really appreciate the way that Jason helped democratize this industry by having a fund that also launches alongside the syndicate. So talk a little bit about the decision to do that. So, you know, one of my theories at that point in time is that I'd say yes to things. Um, <laughs> because, yeah, I was just trying to get something going, you know, and uh, it the, the times in my life where I just said yes to something and took that leap of faith, you know, good things happened. And there's a long list of things I said yes to, like probably three or four a year that resulted in nothing. But one of them was, Naval had shown me syndicates and he taught me how SPVs work. And when I was putting 50k in launch fund one into com, he said, you know, you could share that with the syndicate. So I shared it with, uh, you know, 150 people who are on the syndicate, I think $328,000 came in. So I was like, wait a second, I'm putting 50k in from the fund. Mm -hmm. And now it's exploding 6x plus, you know, 6.5x. Uh, in additional investment. So I was like, wait a second, that's kind of like I have a $10 million fund plus a $60 million fund, if it were to happen on every deal like that. No, it didn't yeah. happen on every deal like that, but it becomes a magnifier and it lets more people in. And then I said, hey, there was a lot of questions. Well, how, does the, uh, how do you determine how much you're going to put, you know, if you have a small allocation, how much goes to the fund, how much goes to the syndicate? Then the syndicate on their side were like, well, what companies get syndicated? The, the ones that are bad or the good ones? And I said, okay, I'm going to come up with some, you know, rules of the road here. And the first rule of the road is, the fund gets 100% of deals. So mm -hmm. there's no syndication of a deal that the fund's not in. Period, full stop. So anybody who's an LP, they're the highest class of, you know, commitment. So they have access to 100% of deals. And when we reach what our goals are in here, it's, you know, put 100k, 250k into a company. When we hit our goal, if there's any allocation left, we will offer the founder to syndicate and we'll offer every founder we invest in to syndicate and it's up to them we can't put a gun to their head and say you have to syndicate your company some people don't want to do that process some people do some people have allocation left over some people don't and so about 50 percent of companies that we offer to choose to do it if you're a syndicate member 
you have access to about half of the deals we do. Mm-hmm. The other half either choose to not do a syndicate or they don't have the allocation available because their round is oversubscribed. So why else might I can understand choosing not to do the syndicate because you don't have the allocation available and you don't want to dilute. But what are other reasons that founders might decide not to do the syndicate? They may not want to um, do the rigorous process, which we require, which is it can take, you know, four to six weeks, you have mm-hmm. to write a deal memo, we require that people do a webinar. Um, and so some founders might not want to write the deal memo, and they might not want to host a webinar and actually talk to, you know, at the time, it was 300. Now it's 9500 syndicate members. And so um, you're sharing your information with a wider group of people. And you're getting a large group of people. Some people see that as a huge benefit because you're mm-hmm. upping the profile of your company. Um, but some people don't want to go through the six-week process, right? They just want to close quickly and they have other sources of funding. Other people look at it and go, wait a second, I'm going to get 150 people and Cal is going to go from owning 1% of my company to five, which is what happened in Com. I like Jason and that's great. More money for us and one person on the cap table. And then all those people who are in the syndicate then act as advocates. So there was a founder who was talking about like the mob nature of what we do. And Mm -hmm. like all these VCs investing in one company and then not in others. And then they've picked a side. Well, when you get 150 people who are high net worth individuals who have now put on average $7,000 each, that's kind of our average six or $7,000 per contributor in the syndicate. They're voting with their dollars to support you. So when Mm -hmm. you send them an update and you're like, I need a CFO or I need an introduction to Disney or does anybody have an experience with a patent attorney that's affordable or I am going to Miami and I'm looking to meet people in the finance industry, you're going to get people hitting the reply key. So instead of having 10 investors on your cap table, you've got 10 plus 150 sub investors on one item on the cap table, the SPV, special purpose vehicle, you know, Jason syndicate who can help you so you can Mm -hmm. literally 15x the number of investors in your company and that's what you're seeing with equity crowdfunding as well on republic and seed invest people are raising money from their customers so they get them to be more loyal right if you could have invested in doordash or uber eats or postmates whichever one you chose to invest in as a consumer you would use that one right yeah so it's 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 a way of building i think uh consensus around your idea and your startup well it's also interesting because it allows launch in many ways like it allows us to offer a lot of services right you have all these firms like big vc firms who are hiring a ton of people building out big huge departments like adding a lot of headcount and payroll so that they can be service providers in addition to investors and it sounds like you've sort of also figured out a way to just like have that included for free yeah Okay, so Launch Fund 1, by the way, of course, when you did this, you were also the original like media slash fund manager. <laughs> and now everyone is trying to figure out that same model. I mean, great. it is interesting that you didn't want to become an angel because you wanted to focus on being an entrepreneur. Then you became an angel. You write in the book that you did not want to be a venture capitalist and have a fund because your idea of hell was being in a bunch yeah. of meetings where everybody also consensus. had to, <laughs> to yeah. have build consensus. Now you're like on a third fund, the funds are getting more established. Like, are you finding that you're having to have you now made the third accidental transition to into a thing you didn't want to do? Yeah, I mean, I I enjoy what we do uh, immensely. And um, scaling it has been fun. And we keep meeting great companies that we want to be in business. And so yeah, we're scaling it. Uh, I think we'll, you know, double the amount we invest roughly every year or so. Um, 
we're not forcing ourselves to do that, but I think we can intelligently scale it. Um, and I just enjoy doing it. So, and I feel like we're very good at it. And I, the democratization of it is really the thing that gets me most excited. And we just closed our largest syndicate deal ever, $6 million. I think, you know, we were averaging 200 to 300K, you know, for the first couple of years per deal. So that means one deal now is the size of roughly probably the first 20 deals we did. Wow. And so scale is coming to this. Uh, people said syndicates would never work. People said equity crowdfunding would never work. People said microfunds would never work. You know, it's, I think innovation in venture capital, you know, everybody's like, this can't work. And then it inevitably does. I'm interested to see how far we can take it. Um, and that's part of why you're here as well. It's like, hey, if I was the, you know, if I pioneered this idea of like being a media personality, journalist and investing and using those two skill sets, uh, you know, you're the second one here. And, um, you know, it's possible there could be two more Molly's and two more Jason's here at some point who are doing what we're doing, which is using our chops in journalism and media to find great companies to analyze great companies. And so that's my thesis, right? And yeah. I, I like to come up with a thesis and see if I could scale it. If you don't have business insurance, you failed one of the first steps in being a great entrepreneur. Startups should look no further than a broker in getting great insurance that will protect you and your team and your vision and your investors and your board members. Here's how Imbroker works. Their technology saves you a ton of time and a ton of money. Prices are up to 20% lower and they have better coverage than the incumbents because they use technology. You know the story. So you can go from sign up to a quote and to purchase in just 10 minutes. So when you work with Imbroker, instead of those incumbents, you're not dealing with large, slow corporations. And the sign up takes just a couple of days, not these weeks or months that I've experienced in the past. And the process is transparent with no opaque pricing. So I'll explain two crucial types of insurance that you need to know about. Cyber insurance. This is obvious. It covers hacks. That happens all the time. You just don't hear about it. And DNO insurance. This helps you if directors, people on the board, or officers, and the C-suite, the top 10, 5, 10 people at a company, do something really dumb. And then you get sued. Here's your call to action to instantly buy custom-built insurance for startups. I want you to go to imbroker.com slash twist. E-M-B-R-O-K-E-R.com slash twist. Imbroker.com slash twist. And while you're there, you're going to get an extra 10% off if you use the offer code TWIST, T-W-I-S-T. That stands for This Week in Startups. Okay, thanks, Imbroker. Great job. All right, let's go back to the past a little bit to the parts yeah. that maybe didn't work out so well. Uh, one mm -hmm. was, and you mentioned this, that you took no management fees. Stupid. And right. So that meant that outside of legal and accounting fees, the fund was supported entirely by the media company. It is my understanding that at some point that caused some problems. Well, I mean, it, it's just dumb. Like there's nobody who's investing in a venture fund who's not used to paying two and a half percent in fees. And that fees would have given me 250k a year, which would have been able to hire you know a couple of people support staff. And that would have been better for me for our investments and ultimately for our LPs. Um, I thought I was like, kind of doing this favor to folks, but I don't think mm. it actually was a favor. I think it was a mistake. And uh, I think when you're raising these funds, having the ability to have management fees, which come out of the returns, by the way, it's not like they give you these fees, and you just, you know, get to spend it like it's a lottery ticket, or, or you know, gambling winnings, it comes out of your gain. So if you were to return $20 million on this 10 million, and you took 20% of you get $4 million, if you had taken 250k a year for, let's say four years, you'd have to give that million dollars back. So you would net 3 million and carry instead of four, right? I, huh. You understand that? I mean, I so, do. Yeah. I'm also yeah. kind of surprised by that. Like, it just sort of feels like you're being you're no matter what you're doing a service, it seems like you'd only have to give it back if you lost money. 
Well, it, the idea is we're going to give you some of the fees now ahead of time to run yeah. it, and we'll just take it out of you know the gains. Yeah. So it's just a way for so the all funds. the more reason that not charging those fees didn't really make a lot of sense. It didn't make a lot of sense. It was yeah. just a dumb decision on my part. There are people who are like, oh my God, the fee structures, the fee structures. You'll hear that once in a while. The truth is, um, it comes out of the GP carry, ultimately, and it gives you the ability to invest. So what Andreessen Horowitz did as a concept was they said, we're only going to hire a bunch of, you know, I hate to say it, white rich guys who, you know, had SaaS companies mm-hmm. <laughs> to be our partners who are independently wealthy, so they don't need to take a big salary. And then we can put that money towards a marketing department, an HR department. That's how it was told to me by, you know, people inside of that company. They would only hire rich people to be VCs there. And if you look at the f- group of people, it was like, oh, yeah, this person worked at Microsoft and made a fortune. This person had startups, et cetera. And it, you oh give God, them credibility, right? They're, they're all winners. So it wasn't exactly a bad thing. But yeah, the, the fees really help. And then we were the first to add a fee to every syndicate deal. Because then what we realized with syndicates were, Okay, you got 150 people who invested in Com or whatever it was. Com was less, but you know, on average, I think we're having 125 or 150 people per deal. They want support. And what happened to all these syndicates was they had no support staff. So then you get to 20 syndicates, it's all fine and good. And then people start asking you questions. Mm-hmm. Where's my K1? How's the company doing? I haven't gotten an update. Well, you know, what's my tax treatment? I'm from, can I change the name of my trust? You know, how do I do this? And all of a sudden, the more deals you do, the more painful your life becomes. Mm-hmm. We did the opposite. We said any syndicate deal we do, uh, I think we started with like a 5K fee. And uh, I think we have a 5 and a 10K fee. So we take 5000 out of the money invested. So it doesn't affect the founder in any way. Yeah. Uh, for deals under 500, I think we charge 10 or 10K for up to a million. And then over a million, we charge 15. So it's basically 1%. Mm-hmm. What does that 1% buy you? A support staff mm-hmm. who can answer the phone and call people back. So, like, if you went to a hotel, you're like, this is a beautiful room. Oh, my God, this is the most amazing view. This is the greatest hotel ever. And then you called the front desk and nobody picked up. You'd be like, well, well, this is the worst experience I've ever had in my life. I can't get room service. I can't get ice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nobody can. There's no concierge. Like, what, what kind of hotel are you running here? So, yeah, we, we added that. And so, I, I think that was Angelus's big mistake is that they didn't put any kind of fee structure on top of it. So. So, yeah. lots of learnings. And then also, the other kind of big aspect of what we do at launch is the accelerator and all of the curriculum. So there's the yep. incubator, the accelerator, like what made you do decide to do that, that and roll events into, you know, this whole kind of operation. I mean, it's always been, it seems like simultaneously a media operation and investing arm yep. and also a lot of education that's free. Yeah. yeah. So what I started to realize was, you know, the, the launch festival, you know, and before it was called TechCrunch 50 and I was partners with that guy. And then we broke up and that was the greatest thing that ever happened. Right, uh, I forgot about that. Yeah, it was, I was kind of tied to a guy who's, you know, let's just say, you know, his way of doing business was not the way I can like to conduct myself. Um, didn't, didn't and it was, just, it was just causing all kinds of uh, problems. And it was the greatest thing ever because once I got that sack of potatoes off my back, I was able to run really fast. <laughs> it was like a load of bricks um the goodwill and the joy increased so i think you know picking partners if you pick one who's really cynical and dark <laughs> things tend trend to a dark place yeah. um and that it was really the best thing that ever happened or in the moment it was pretty messy and then when i controlled the conference um i could do things like make it free for everybody and then eventually we gave all the demo pit tables away for free and i think the largest one here in san francisco hit fifteen thousand. and then we did the two years in australia before the covid and i want to bring it back next year 
Um, and the concept was very simple. I came up with 50 companies launching, giving them three minutes each, coaching them on how to pitch. We didn't require it, but we said, hey, we'd like to invest. And then the reason we did the accelerator was so many of the companies could not clear a market with investors. That's what we heard over and over again. But we looked at them and we were like, this is going to clear a market with investors in six or 12 months. Mm-hmm. And we could really support them. So we came up with the accelerator concept, the launch accelerator. We, we originally called it an incubator. And then we were like, we're really accelerating, not incubating. Mm-hmm. Um, incubating means like somebody has an idea and you hatch it. Accelerating means they've already got an MVP and maybe a couple of customers. And we accelerate what they need to do, add customers and get capital in the door from investors. So we did it as an experiment. We've now done 24 classes. And, um, you know, I, it's a better product than Y Combinator's product for the founders, for sure. Um, but we're not trying to scale it in a really major way. Because I kind of mm-hmm. feel like if you go from 7 to 14 to 21 in a class, it's just, the, it's not fun for me. It's not magical. Uh, so we started to look at all those events and said, if we can remove any fees and make them bigger, that will increase our deal flow. And now we're sitting in a place where you know, the reason I was very successful early on was my deal flow. Now, the deal flow is actually a burden. (laughs) Mm. We we have so much deal flow. (laughs) And this is the burden of success in venture. um, And one I'm still trying to figure out how to get around and you see me doing it every day with building processes here uh, at launch and the syndicate is how do you scale when you have too many people contacting you? Uh, You need people and then everybody wants the celebrity, right? Uh, And that's the problem with being a celebrity investor. If I don't meet with somebody, maybe they feel oh, Jason doesn't care. And I just really am honest with people. I'm like, you know, we, we're doing 50 meetings a week uh, or something in that range as a firm called from 500 people coming in, you know, so we're, yeah. or whatever, you know, hundreds of people. I'm probably like 200 qualified people contacting us. It could be hundreds in a week. There's no way for me to humanly do it. So, mm-hmm. but if somebody does say like, I'm really, like this happens once in a while, you probably have been privy to this. Like, I thought I was meeting with Jason and mm-hmm. I met with this person. I'm like, oh, well, we want to make sure it's a fit for you with that introductory meeting. So you just understand the firm before you get on the phone with me. So your conversation with me, uh, if it does get to that point, it's a fit for you. And then, you know, my team feels it's a fit for us. We don't waste your time and we can start our conversation just about your business because you know everything about us and how we operate. And you've already opted into what we do. The process is, as best as I can tell, what we do in investing and capital allocating is a process that needs to change based on market conditions, uh, your goals and what founders need. And you just got to constantly look at it and refine it. Right. So yeah, uh, I'm really a process person now. How big an evolution is that for you? I know. I feel like the way you said that was like a big admission. Like my name is Jason. I'm a process person now. (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, it's like you go from, uh, you know, when you go from being a bounty hunter like Boba Fett, you know, and you're just like, yeah. well, I can just yes. capture anybody <gasps> I need, just send me on a mission. And then all of a sudden you're like, you know what, I need a tribe if I'm going right. to you know, get to the next level. So, And it's hard and people are going to try to kill you in the streets and yeah, some people might stab you in the back. Yeah. At some point you need a tribe, I think. And, uh, you know, you, you see it also in professional sports, right? You have somebody like Michael Jordan or you have somebody like LeBron James and they try to put the whole team on their back and score 40 points. And, and great, you know, that they get to the finals or they get to the playoffs and then they get in the playoffs and they realize, yeah, you know, in a seven game series, you're going to need to have your Clay Thompson. You're going to need to have your Draymond. It's it's not just about Steph, right? Yeah. Um, and, and really, I think breakout success, you know, only happens with a team. And so that's what these little funds you'll see, you know, someone like Mac 
will not be defined by these small funds. He'll be defined by the three or four people he can put around him, right, over time. And that's why I really enjoyed this series, is looking at, like, these nascent funds and watching them figure it out and kind of cool series. I, I like the season of Angel. It's been very interesting for me. It is super interesting. Obviously, it couldn't be better timing for me <laughs> either. But when did you know, like, this is, you know, questions from producers. Yeah. When did the fund start to work? Like when, what was the moment when you were, you know, there's obviously the part where maybe you ran out of a little money because of the fees thing. But then there's the part where you were like, oh, dude, this is going to work. Yeah. This is happening. Or what, did you have that feeling all along? Because people were like, take my money and invest it for me. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that uh, was an interesting signal that things were going to work was when people started asking to buy my positions in companies. So the secondary market, um, which was just getting started, you know, after Facebook started selling secondary shares, when people kept asking me, hey, you know, Uber's at 5 billion, can I buy your Uber shares? Or, you know, you want to sell your thumbtack shares or your Robinhood launched? Hey, you know, do you want to sell your Robinhood shares? And then you start seeing the, the up rounds that occur. And that's when you start to realize, huh, you hit something. But I, I think more than anything, Calm was, a, was the one for me that is super rewarding and Watching Com just send their monthly updates, they were really good about sending them, and the best companies typically are. You just started to see the revenue numbers keep going up and the subscriber mm. counts going up. And then when Apple went from charging for an app, 10 bucks one time, to a subscription model, all of a sudden their revenue kind of went up and to the right. And it was like, okay, I was just watching their cash balance increase with every update. And I'm like, you guys don't need to raise money. When are you raising money again? They're like, what would we do with it? And I'm like, right. great question. Like this business is so profitable. And they went from a $5 million round and then they emailed me one day and like, Hey, we're going to convert these notes or whatever. And you know, the notes had been sitting out for a little while, had a little bit of interest on it. And I was like, yeah, whatever. I'm supportive. And I'm like, what's the valuation? Like $250 million. And they're like, would you like to sell some of your shares? I'm like, yeah, maybe I'll sell a little bit and lock yeah, in okay, 50 X. Okay. Yeah. I'll sell. Yeah, sure. Um, and so that, that was a you know, really big win for me. And then personally, what I was very proud of with that one, and I think this is where you start to get good as an investor, is wh when you hit a non-consensus bet and it really works out, that really does make you, it's like Wait, calling so somebody's bluff like in you poker. you made a bet, but most other investors passed? But exactly. That's what yeah. non-consensus uh, yeah. is. A great I mean, I know what the word means. I'm just making absolutely sure of that. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's We're literally- We're translating here for, for new people. <laughs> the perfect, you gave, you gave it the perfect definition. Like you made the bet and nobody else would, when nobody else would. And I yeah. think- subsequently the team at com told me they had met with 40 investors and they all said no and we were the only yes and then they further told me they were going to shut the company down if i didn't come through with the money uh so that really like wow. opened your heart up a little bit and you're just like oh wow fascinating like i really actually you know i played a part here you know with uber at one point i was at a party which i was i don't think i've ever told this story and somebody was like you're the luckiest bastard ever calacanis you don't and travis said i'm gonna stop you right there jason was critical in the success of uber and he supported me when I had my previous company and he supported founders for 10 years. The fact that he did so well on Uber is the culmination of a decade of him supporting founders. And yep. he brought us three of our first five investors, not just himself. And uh, it was a very also a heartwarming moment for me too, because, you know, people were like, oh, you got lucky. And it's like, well, of course there's luck involved here, but there's also process and there is also intentionality. And so it's a good question of like, when did I actually think I was good at this? I mean, I knew I was good at it from day one because I had referred my friends, you know, to other VC firms and they went on to build multi-billion dollar companies. So yeah. I, I knew I was, I knew I would be good at it very quickly.
um, just because of my deal flow. And also as a journalist, you know this, like you kind of get a second sense when somebody's bullshitting you mm-hmm. or they're media trained. Um, you and I ran into this on a recent episode when, mm-hmm. you know, the GoCuff founder was like, that's a great question, Jason. Let me tell you our origin story. And I was like, no, nope. like, nope. 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 don't want nope. the origin story. I want you to tell me about margins. Let's, let's, let, let's get this like on track here. You know, we can get to the origin story. And then of course he snuck it in, but I was like, well done. I <laughs> know. <laughs> <laughs> then you got to respect it at that point. <laughs> I, yeah, I was like, okay, fine. Yeah. I'll give you your moment here about your origin I want, story. You know, I uh, was talking to your, our mutual coworker, Mike Sabino. Um, yeah. You know, asking for his advice too. And his basic advice, and I wonder if you'd share the same thing, is like, listen, if you want to be a VC, watch 100 pitches. Watch 100. Yeah. And yeah. after 100 and pitches, you'll be like, okay, I see the pattern here. You know, how many pitches in are you? Just to me. Okay. So let's see. You. It's week seven, and I've yeah. had no fewer than five a week. So 35. Great. Awesome. Yeah. And so now you're starting to see the signaling and what you got excited about before and then the valuation and you start building this mental model. Okay, this company has a million dollars in revenue. They want a hundred million dollar valuation. This person has 500. They want a $20 million valuation. This person has two employees. This has 10. This yep. person has pilot customers. This person has Kickstarter customers. This person has real customers. This is a SaaS business model. This is a one-time hardware purchase. You start to like build this mental model of all 35 companies and which ones um you know yeah. check off enough boxes to make it a good bet and i you know that's what i told you in the beginning was just take your time you know uh it's very you get very excited uh when you and first like, start um, going i don't this know process. how to do that <laughs> it's hard not to be enthusiastic you and you gotta noticed. remember founders <laughs> self-select for charisma yes and so once you realize that that these are incredibly charismatic people who will do a hundred meetings to get one investor you realize like okay i'm the hundred I'm the hundredth pitch. Mm-hmm. They really know how to sell this thing. And then you have to say, okay, I got the sales pitch. What's the reality of this business? You know, let's talk to some customers. Let's, you know, look at yeah. the actual books and the, the business model, right? You start to really understand things. Um, well, let's do a little lightning round uh, sure. of fund manager, as producer Nick is calling him, fund manager commandments, because this mm-hmm. is, you know, a, a series about people who are raising their first funds. You went through this in a lot of with, you know, yeah. great success and some difficulty. If you have some major pieces of advice, whether it's structural, tactical or theoretical, like, sure. I don't know, top five it. I think uh, having a base, a wide base of LPs is important, right? Uh, because you want to build a base so you're not dependent on anyone. Like we had one big one. It was 50% of the fund. We took it. But over time, we wanted to have a, a wider group. So we're not dependent on anyone. Um, and that's good. I think just good hygiene. Um, Mm -hmm. I think making the capital calls not annoying. Like we were doing capital calls, like I saw Sequoia doing, which was you take the money down because your returns start from when you take the money down. So if you took the whole ten million and you deployed, you know, two point five million a year, you would have taken seven point five million down in that first year and sat on it for between two, three, and four years, which means you're starting the clock on your IRR, your rate of return every year. So you're basically handicapping yourself. So mm-hmm. what funds will do is when you're in a fund from a Sequoia or a founders fund, they'll send you a capital call and they'll put that money to work. They don't let money sit there. But when you have a $10 million fund and the average person is putting in 50 and you do 12 calls of $4,000 each, people can find that a little annoying um, because they're like, okay, now I got to do another wire of 4 million, another wire of 4 million. So you know, you can, we now tell people, hey, here's what to expect in terms of capital calls. We're going to do a 25%, a 25%, a 25%. You can 
kind of make it a little less arduous. That's like a little minor issue. Hmm. Um, taking your time is important. And then concentration, um, you know, you have to double down on your winners. So the big criticism I got when I started talking to the big LPs, the top funds in the world was, oh, wow, it's great that you found these companies, but you're an idiot for not continuing to invest in them. And you need to own five or 10% or 15% of one of these big winners to truly be great at what you do, not 50 basis points. And so we started that process of with the syndicate and with our funds trying to get to 10% ownership in the winners and, you know, 5% in com, 2% in superhuman turned into, you know, 12% or, you know, six, five or 6% in density, 12% in grin. We started to get these bigger ownership positions. Um, and then also, you know, being on the board and being supportive there and having proper governance and having a seat at the table is critically important. If you can't, if you're not on the board, even as an observer or a formal formal board member, you might not even know there's a round coming. You will not know how good the company is doing. You're going to be constantly behind those people on the board. Those investors who are on the board have the pole position to get in the next round and you will find out about the next round and it will probably be closed. And so then you're going to be fighting retroactively to try to get your pro rata or try to get super pro rata. When we're on the boards of these companies, we've said many times to founders, hey, this is going really well. What's your funding plan? They're like, yeah, you, you know, in six to 12 months, we'll do it. And we'll say, okay, last round was 10 million. I think the company's worth 20. Would you like us to put a million dollars in at 20 and we'll buy 5% more of the company and you don't have to go on a funding tour. You don't have to make a deck. We'll just do it. Yeah. And they're like, okay. So that's a real advantage, I think, if, you know, if you do take the time to take board seats and, and participate in governance, which is arduous and painful uh, at times uh, and time consuming. But I think that's part of the magic is getting to that 10 to 15% ownership. Um, and I think having a strategy of how you're going to be a multi fund manager over time, and maybe setting some goals for that, um, and thinking really about your Goldilocks zone. So another commandment, where can you be add the most value and, you know, really doubling down on that. And then if you find there's a certain type of founder, a certain type of sector, a certain geo where you have an advantage, you want a pressure advantage. So if you're really good at, uh, you know, the seed stage or the accelerator stage, you really want a pressure advantage and see how far you can push that, which is what YC is doing. YC is not creating a series A fund. They're not creating a syndicate, uh, equity crowdfunding site. They're like, we're the best at us, you know, doing this accelerator. Let's double the size of the accelerator every year until we get to, you know, a thousand companies a year. So yeah. it's, it's good to have focus. I'm going to give the notice two questions because they're loving this unfettered access to oh, wow. the, the J-Cal. Um, there are many more good questions in there, but uh, there's a great question from, obviously, Bob G, which I think you talked oh, about gee. just a little bit. Bob I know, G. right? Which um, is, you know, what was hard about scaling the investment team? And a similar, actually, I'm going to ask them both at once because Bob G was basically like, what were some of the issues you ran into as you were scaling your investment team? And then related, what are some of the things that you loved doing during the first fund that you now don't get to do today because of that scaling? Yeah, you know, I, I was the first, I'll take the second one first, the, I was the first line of and the only person meeting with companies. So, you know, I was, I was just doing a ton of meetings every week. And I don't do a ton of the first meetings anymore, because it's just not an efficient use of my time. Yeah, because so many of them, you know, I'd say the overwhelming majority of people we're going to meet with, they're too early for us. So we have other products for them, like Founder University, the 12 week program, or the two day program, or even the launch accelerator. So, you know, when you're scaling these things, um, you need to be, you know, kind of ruthless with your time. And uh, so I do miss that a little bit. Um, it's a very joyful of, process. It's it's really great. And, you know, saying no is kind of hard. So 
uh, you know, uh, I don't miss saying no to founders. I always had a problem with that. Um, but I always tried to be constructive. So it, it wasn't the worst, but I, I kind of believe in everything. <laughs> I'm so optimistic. I believe everybody can learn and evolve. And in terms of building the team, uh, you know, I, I think I did a pretty good job of that. I looked at the things I hated doing or that were really time consuming and did not make me want to go to work in the morning, like legal issues, accounting issues, you know, these kind of things can really build up. And there are some people's brains who are really good at, you know, ripping through the spreadsheet and keeping track of things and doing that. That's just not my brain as much. I think I'm a little more of a creative and artist type. And communication is my sort of um, superpower. So I just started ruthlessly saying, hey, Ashley, Heidi, Laura, just different people on the team. I want you to do this and mm -hmm. really empowering people to make decisions. In fact, even with the accelerator, I said, you know, I really want to get to the point where I'm not the person accepting the accelerator companies. I'm not the person accepting people into founding university. And I used to do those acceptances. Mm -hmm. Now I'm just like, if we're making 100k better in an accelerator company, the team can make that bet and do that diligence. And I'll meet the company when they're in the accelerator. That's fine yeah. with me, you know? Yeah. Um, again, we're trying to get to that 10% ownership, which is going to take, you know, over time, a couple of million dollars of investment. And so it's better I spend my time there. So, you know, it's, and I, I like developing talent. You know, that's been also fun for me. So explaining to people how to do calls, you know, and that's why I wrote the book. So I think that's a superpower too, is being able to train people on how to do this job. And I enjoy, get immense pleasure out of that. Jason Calacanis, the original angel. Oh, there it is. Round and out. Thanks for having the me on my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this has been an amazing episode about me. Thanks, Jason. Uh, Thanks for coming down. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you coming on the Don't forget to upload to that to audio. Okay. Oh, wait, that's me. Uh, great job interviewing me. Uh, well, and congratulations well, to all the people who uh, were on this season as well, raising their first funds. And I hope this, you know, me sharing what I learned is um, helpful to them as well. Great job giving me the hard question. Hey everyone, producer Nick here. I want to tell you about the SaaS syndicate. If you're a founder of a SaaS company with a product and market, our investment team wants to talk to you. Head over to thesyndicate.com slash SaaS, S-A-A-S, to apply to raise from the SaaS syndicate. And you can join Jason's syndicate of over 9,000 accredited investors at thesyndicate.com. Producer Justin here. No cool startup? Check out OpenScouting.com, where anyone can refer a startup to our investment team here at launch. Even if you don't know the founder, if you're the first to flag a company for us and we decide to invest, you'll get 5K in cash or 10% of our carry. Hey everybody, producer Rachel here. Are you an early stage startup that has product and market, some traction, and are looking to raise at least $500,000? Apply today to Remote Demo Day for your chance to pitch to over 9,000 investors in Jason's syndicate. Submit your application at remotedemoday.com. Our next event is on April 27th. And if you want to learn how to invest in startups from the world's greatest angel investor, and no, we're not talking about Chris Saka, then head to angel.university to apply. The four-hour workshop costs $300 and all proceeds are donated to charity. To date, we've donated over $175,000 to various charities, and you can see the full list at angel.university slash charity. 